This is Coping with Dystopia from Dare to be Grey. This is the show about finding ways to flip the script on our dark times. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today we're coping with the death of press freedom. The state security department in Cuba works uh, like mafia. They don't respect the laws that they do, that they create. They can take you without any order. They can interrogate you. They can detain you. They can do anything with you. And uh, nothing happens. And today's guest, Monica Barro Sanchez, has first-hand knowledge of this. Monica is an independent investigative journalist from Havana, Cuba. But these days, she lives in Madrid because she has to. More of her incredible story in just a few minutes and her five ways to cope with the retreat. I said death before is a little dramatic, I know. So let's call it the retreat of press freedom around the world, especially if you're a journalist yourself, you will find that very informative and and interesting. And I'm sure you're feeling the retreat. But first, it's over to the Dare to be Grey duo, Jordi and Hannah. Hello, guys. Hi. Hi, Jonathan. So today's show is called Coping with the Death of Press Freedom, or I don't know, Coping with the Retreat of Press Freedom, or Coping with Press Freedom That's Dying. I mean, just how grim is it? Well, I think the first thing that we should start with is defining what freedom of the press actually is, or press freedoms. So it's the right of newspapers, magazines, and the likes to report news without being controlled by the government. And as we have seen, and we will discuss today, this has been changing quite drastically. Yeah, you know, a topic like this is pretty hard to put a number on it. But luckily, the World Press Freedom Index by Reporters Without Borders does exactly that. And um, I sound maybe a bit too excited because it's a pretty grim picture. Um, You know, they take into consideration political context, uh, legal frameworks, economic context, social cultural context and safety of reporters. And um, they see a decreasing trend all over the world. And all of those levels? Pretty much, yeah. So they um, blame increasing polarization mainly for this, but also um, the growth of disinformation. And I think one country in particular that it would be uh, good for us to talk to, seeing as we are all coming to you from the Netherlands. The Netherlands this year has dropped 22 points in the World Press Freedom Index because of um, a number of uh, deaths, um, a firebomb in Groningen, um, uh, and, and difficulties that journalists are having with trying to um, have have the freedom of the press. So this has become a massive issue uh, in, in the Netherlands, of course, but in plenty of other countries as well. Not to mention the rather uh, highly reported on murder, the assassination of Peter R. de Vries, who was an investigative journalist who was looking into the underworld. And it was part, actually, uh, was working with one of the witnesses for a trial, and they just liquidated him in broad daylight. I mean, that was insane, you know? And that made world news as well, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's, uh, it can be seen as a trend, right? Um, our major uh, state broadcaster decided to remove their logos from their vans because they were constantly attacked by people who disagreed with the media. Exactly, yeah. That I mean, is there a lack of trust in the media as well? Because that's part of it, right? On the part of the general public. 
Well, it, it does seem to be changing depending on which country you are looking at. Um, so, for example, in the UK, um, a, a YouGov poll found that the the trust in the media has actually increased. Not that it was particularly high in the first place, though. Yeah, and also here in the Netherlands during the, the COVID-19 pandemic, apparently the trust in, well, with air quotes, mainstream media increased um, during these grim times. So maybe there's a silver lining somewhere to be found. But Jonathan, what about you? You've worked with, with a lot of journalists. What's your experience been with them and, and how has it changed over the years? Well, I haven't really noticed it changing too much over the years. But what I did notice, because I work with people who are from mostly developing countries from literally everywhere, a lot of people from Africa, but also Asia and some from uh, Latin America. And, you know, I've, I've, I've taught with all of these people. And the one thing that I learned was that I shouldn't make any assumptions about what freedom of the press is like in their country. Because each country has a very different situation. In countries where I often made assumptions where it would probably be quite terrible, wasn't tr I was completely wrong. Uh, a perfect example of that would be Nigeria, which uh, has a very robust freedom of the press. The government doesn't interfere much at all. There's plenty of self-censorship because you know, there's lots of powerful forces in that country. You don't want to piss too many people off. But the but the pressure isn't really coming from the government too much. The pressures are coming from societal forces. And that's the same everywhere. Yeah, a lot of journalists are careful about the things they say. And it's usually in a country with real freedom of, freedom of the press. The issue isn't the government, right? So it still qualifies as freedom of the press. So that's the case in a country like uh, Nigeria, for example, which shouldn't be at all compared to uh, people who I get from lots of other countries like South Sudan or uh, people who are coming from Somalia. Those are, those are countries where people really struggle because I've had people I know who come from Somalia and when they have an investigative report that they want to do, they, the, the day before it's released, they get themselves in a car and they drive over the border to Kenya and hide out for a month. So, so that's a really, really different situation. And then they wait for, for the story to sort of die down, and then they know they can go home because the heat's off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, context is so important. Um, we, we can't really compare the situation we're facing here in uh, the Netherlands or in Europe even with what's, what's happening in uh, different countries. And, you know, a list like the World uh, Press Freedom Index, uh, it gives us some angles to look at it, some perspectives. Uh, for example, as always, the Scandinavian countries, they tend to do very well. They're so annoying. It's not without a reason. Yeah, they're, so, they're always ranking as the happiest countries. Well, apparently also uh, the countries with the most press freedom. Look at them shine over there up north. Um, but for, yeah, just uh, for your information, you know, the Netherlands currently dropped down to a very disappointing 28th position, but um, there are only 180 countries surveyed and Cuba ranks 173. So I'm very curious about the story that Monica will share with us because that's, of course, uh, a different place to work in. So let's get back to Monica. Well, my name is Monica Baro Sanchez. I'm a Cuban journalist who is now based in Madrid since January 2021. And I'm 34 years old. Well, I'm still 33, but uh, in a few days, I'm going to be a 30 years old woman. <laughs> 
And full disclosure here, this is not the first time Monica and I have spoken. In fact, she was my student way back in 2017. Well, I went to a workshop in the Netherlands from Radio Netherlands Training Center, uh, and you were my my professor. Was it was a course about investigative journalism, and uh, for me it was fantastic, terrific experience. You know what I don't remember was whether or not the projects that you presented was the one that you eventually did when you got to Cuba. Was it? Yes, uh, actually, I published both of them. Uh, the first one was an investigation about the lead poisoning. That was the the story that was awarded in 2019 from the Gabo Foundation. And then uh, the next year, I published uh, the, this story about the murder of a woman in a town in Cuba. But I, I finished both of them. <laughs> You did them both. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty special because not everybody who leaves my course goes <laughs> off and, and does uh, the investigation that they graduated with. But you actually did both of them. So that yeah. was kind of incredible. I have to say, it's very well done. Thank you. <laughs> Indeed. After my course, Monica went back to Cuba and proceeded to uh, make the good kind of trouble. In 2019, her story, La Sangre Nunca Fue a Maria, or Blood Was Never Yellow, about lead poisoning in Cuba, had two kinds of impacts. Firstly, she won the Gabriel Garcia Marquez Journalism Award, one of Latin America's highest honors. And secondly, the Cuban government began a harassment campaign so intense she was forced to move to Spain. After she published her story online and then got her award in Colombia, she went home and received a message that she needed to go and visit the police. The next day I went to this police station in Playa and uh, in the last floor of the building I entered to the to the Department of Intelligence there and uh, I had uh, the interrogation there with two agents from the state security department. They were wearing normal clothes. They, they were not wearing uniforms. So wait a second. When you got to the police station, did you know that you were going to the floor with the intelligence agents? Did you know that? Yes, of course, because that's uh, the regular uh, strategy with all activists and journalists in Cuba. Oh, Did you right. know that you're going to find them? That's not <laughs> new for us. <laughs> <laughs> you realize how heavy that sounds, right? Yes, and uh, the state security department in Cuba works uh, like mafia. They don't respect the laws that they do, that they create. They can take you without any order. They can interrogate you. They can detain you. They can do anything with you, and uh, nothing happens. So if you received a message that those were the guys who you needed to go see, I have to say that sounds terrifying, Monica. I understand that perhaps it's something hard to understand <laughs> for people outside Cuba, but that's a reality which is very common in Cuba. And uh, we journalists, activists, uh, artists who are uh, opposed in a way to the government face that all the time. The, the state security department is like part of our uh, mainly they it's part of our jobs it's part of our lives and we are used to 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 see them 
uh, appear at, at any time. And we're used to that. It's, it's sad, but uh, it's, it's what it is. And uh, we have been living like that since 1959. But I mean, like, what were they asking you? Like, exactly how did that particular interrogation go? Everything. They even want to know if you are dating with someone, if you are lesbian or straight, everything. They want to know everything about you. Everything. Private things, uh, professional things. They want to know how much you earn, uh, who, which are the organizations that um, give money to your magazine, what you learned during some workshop uh, in a different country. Uh, everything. They want to know everything. And do you give them straight answers? Well, when it's something that I, I think that I, I could answer, uh, I'm open about it because um, I, I'm really open in my journalistic work too. I, I used to write a lot about myself, but uh, when they start to ask about different people, that's like the limit for me because uh, I'm not in the position to talk about anybody else. Uh, I only respond uh, for myself. So you refuse to answer? Yeah. So when they ask me about uh, someone, I just uh, say to, to them that my name is Monica Baró. And uh, if they want to talk with someone else, they should ask them to, to talk. And uh, I, I can only offer answers regarding myself. And how long did they hold you this first time? It took only like an hour and a half. Ah, easy as pie. Only an hour and a half of being interrogated. <laughs> yes, but there are, there are longer interrogations, yes. Right. So how did that end? It ended with me being fined <laughs> by two uh, guys from the Ministry of Communications. They have uh, this uh, law that um, allows them to uh, punish people for the uh, publications in, in social media. So you got fined. That's it. You just yes. had to pay some money. Yes, like around $120. $120. That sounds like a lot of money yes. in Cuba, I have to say. Yes. At, at, at that moment was like the half of my salary, like an independent journalist. So you paid your fine and you went home. And then what happened? And then I started to leave a lot of harassment in, on social media from uh, different people, especially from guys and especially from fake profiles. And uh, it was very hard for me because they talk about my personal life. They uh, accused me of many things. They they were very macho too in their uh, comments and uh, they also can you give me an example my, of what, can you give me an example of the kind of thing they said do you want to well say they, they they said that I was uh, a hawker is that the right work is it what like puta puta right okay a whore. that I uh, that I was crazy because uh, I've suffered from depression and uh, that's something that I've written about it they mentioned the the men which uh, I, I used to have uh, relationships and uh, it was a very difficult time because it was very intense I even received calls during the during the night late in the night and uh, 
I, I also received calls um, during the, the mornings at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and I had to restrict the, the calls in my cell phone. And they sent uh, messages with my neighbors too. Your neighbors? Uh, yes, my neighbors. What would they say? Uh, said to Monica that uh, we're watching and uh, he, she should stay uh, quiet and she she has to to be uh, to, to she has to keep distance from people who are activists which were my friends actually <laughs> and uh, this kind of things that uh, in a way they were trying to let me know that they were uh, watching and they were part of my life and they knew uh, my movements. That sounds terrifying. Yes, <laughs> but it's 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 tiring. Is you learn to to deal with that, and it's also complicated in Cuba because in Cuba there's only one company of communications. Um, this company is the one that provides internet as uh, services, and for some reason, the data of this company is public. So if you go to that data that it was uh, leaked. Nobody knows how. You can put my name there and you will find my address, my ID number, and my, my phone number. Well, you were doxxed. That's what that's called, doxing. But for journalists, it's even worse because they also talk about us on national television and they treat us like enemies and they are promoting uh, hate speech all the time. And uh, imagine if your address is uh, available for anyone and uh, you are like exposed to any crazy men or woman that can go to your house and do anything. Did they say your name on TV? So there's, yes, of course. What did they say? I used to appear in these uh, reporters. They did talking about the enemies of the revolutions and mercenaries, people who are paid to destroy the revolution, who are criminals, and the government is not going to allow them to uh, change anything and things like that. They they put my face on all of these uh, reporters they used to do. So your face was on TV and they were calling you a criminal and that you were dangerous. Yes, but I was with other colleagues, so I didn't feel Oh, you feel weren't alone, alone, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, we were sharing. <laughs> Did it change the way your neighbors and, and friends looked at you? No, because I I was living in the house that I grew up and uh, I have uh, or I had a neighbor that she well she knows me uh, since I I was born and she once uh, hided me from from the state security department that went to my house to to ask for me and I was at that moment at her house and uh, she saw them come and of course we recognized them because they 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 have an attitude they they were they their clothes are very typical they they the cars they use and uh, she she recognized them immediately and I was at their home and she said to me stay here and don't leave the house <laughs> just let's wait to to them to leave your home 
Can you give me an example of what the harassment was like before you decided you wanted to leave? After the integration of April started, uh, all I just uh, told you, the harassment on social media, the campaigns on national television and on state uh, media outlets, and uh, the messages, the threats to friends. And uh, there were people that, in a way, was scared of me because... Uh, uh, they 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 felt that they could become a, a target of the police if they were too close to me or, or if they showed that they were close to me. In November 2020, they changed uh, the agent and uh, they also changed the strategy because this new agent was very, very, uh, how can I say, uh, kind in a way and uh, he he didn't yell at me and uh, he he was trying to 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 show some respect he he even had read my my work and uh, it was a, an important change because i believe they they realized that uh, violence was not a a good way to to deal with me because uh, I didn't react in a good way to the violence of uh, April and uh, at the end I believe they want they wanted me to leave the country and they knew that if they they were too aggressive perhaps I could uh, react in a different way. And uh, of course, in November, it was also complicated because this agent was different. I believe was he was wiser, he was older too. He had more experience, but still he, he did threats. He did threats because he was very clear about my, my options. And my options were to leave the country or to stay in the country and facing uh, jail, basically, for my job. Wow. So he, he basically gave you an ultimatum. Yes. He said, in a very friendly way, it sounds like. Yes. He, he also pressed to, for me uh, to leave the country, because after that first interrogation that took like five hours, that was longer, it was in a private house, it was not in a police station, and after that interrogation, he used to call like three times a week or two times a week, and uh, he visited me or or asked me to to see him uh, like once a week. And I he asked all the time when I was going to to leave the country. So when was the moment when you decided that's it, I'm going? I, that was a decision that I wanted to take uh, since 2019. Uh, I wanted to leave, but uh, only for one year and go back. And I wanted to leave to a fellowship or something like that. Uh, I didn't want to leave uh, in the way that I left Cuba on January 2021. But uh, I believe that the pandemic and the harassment and threats that I started to leave there were very important to take that decision. And uh, there were too many 
things together. In one hand, there was the the fat that I was very tired emotionally, emotionally of the kind of stories that I used to to tell that I was uh, telling as a journalist in Cuba. And in the other hand, I felt that it was no longer possible for me to do journalism in Cuba because they they used to cut my internet access. They uh, put me under domiciliary arrest and I couldn't leave my home. And uh, the only option that I see in the near future was to become an activist or a politician, something like that, an opposition leader. And uh, that was not the the path that I wanted to take. I was a journalist. I am a journalist. And uh, uh, I really felt that it was no longer possible to do journalism in Cuba. I wonder if you felt like by leaving, they win. Did that play around in your head at all? No, of course not. Of course not. They win if they if they break you. They win if they make you weak. They win if they silence you. But um, I'm fine. And I, I believe that it's important to know your limitations and to preserve your mental health because your credibility as a journalist is everything. And if you are not okay, you are going to start committing mistakes and uh, you're going to start affecting your credibility. And that's something that you cannot do. Let me take you back to the day that you left Cuba. Uh, first of all, what, when was that? January 8th, 2021. And you're going to the airport and you're going to Spain. Yes. Because Spain gave you a visa for a visit, right? I had my last interrogation that day at the airport. <laughs> wow. You said, I'm leaving. What did they say? Oh, they wanted to let me know that uh, they would keep an eye on me, no matter which place I, I was going. And um, if, I, if they wanted to reach me, they would do it. And uh, if, they, if, if they wanted to... To, to keep in touch, they, they could do it too. Up to now, I haven't had news from them, but I'm not sure perhaps that they have people here working too because they have people in all over the world. So you never know who is working for them. So you're leaving, you get on that airplane, you sit in the chair, the plane takes off and Cuba starts disappearing behind you. What goes through your head at that moment? That it was not the end, because uh, that's my my hometown. That's uh, my love to, and my heart, or part of my heart, is in Cuba. How are you, Monica? Fine, <laughs> I'm fine. I I can I can complain. Um, I'm a very uh, grateful person. Really, I, I'm very happy most of the time. Of course, uh, sometimes I, I'm sad. I really miss my my parents. I, before leaving Cuba, I, I was never far from my parents. It was very hard for me to, to leave my country. I was living in the same house that I born 32 years. It was very hard for me, that change. 
But uh, I think a lot in the people that doesn't have the option that I have and the people that are in jail or that faced jail for too many years and they just left jail to get old because it was too late for starting anything. I'm a healthy person. I have great friends and uh, I really don't ask too much for living. I'm, I'm very conscious of the privilege that I have. I feel grateful for it. If you could do it all over, do that investigation, go through what you were put through before you left Cuba and then leaving Cuba, if you could do it all over, would you do it again? Yes, of course, definitely. <laughs> all that story and all those experiences made me the person I am and I'm very proud of the person I am. And I really like the person I, I, I am. I, I am able of uh, sleeping fine all nights and I look myself at the mirror and I feel in peace with me. I'm proud of me. And we are going to, to leave this world, this world at some point. We don't know when, we don't know how. Uh, sometimes it's uh, too soon and sometimes it's when you are already too old. But that's a fact. And the only, things, the only thing that makes sense is to make every uh, experience of your life uh, meaningful is to, to do something with your life that makes sense to, to your presence in this uh, world. So uh, for me, uh, it has been a, an honor actually to, to be a journalist, to tell stories, to help to, to build the memory of my country to be in the history of my country. That's something that it's a huge honor for me because I know that I'm uh, in the big history of my country, like a journalist. And I know that uh, in the future, people will have to read my works in order to know what was going on. It's an honor. So I do it again and again and again. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Shall we read your five pieces of advice? One. Do not justify the lack of rigor and accuracy with the lack of freedom and access to sources. The quality of your journalistic work is one of the best skills you have in front of an authoritarian regime. Two, do not investigate dangerous stories on your own. Try to collaborate with different journalists and editors inside your country and also with media outlets from other countries. Three, be aware that in a country where there are no legal guarantees to do journalism, if you decide to do journalism instead of propaganda, you will become an activist for freedom of, of speech and press freedom. Try to separate both roles, though they are related. Four, accept when you have to take distance from your job and take distance. It is important to take care of ourselves. You cannot do responsible journalism and tell complicated stories if you do not have a strong mental health. Five, there's no story more important than your life. Each media in an authoritarian regime must create security protocols and their journalists have to follow them. It is impossible to avoid all risks, but you can manage them and try to be exposed to them the less you can. Well. 
Monica Baro Sanchez, thank you very much. You're an inspiration. Thanks to you for having the opportunity to talk about my job. <laughs> the Cuban investigative journalist Monica Baro Sanchez. Monica is still active in Cuba, even though she now writes from abroad. And if she can get a student visa in time, she's been offered a scholarship and a fellowship at New York University. Jordi, Hannah, what'd you think of the story? Oh, well, Jonathan, it, it's a it's a pretty amazing story to hear. I, I just can't quite believe that that she pretty much got pushed out of, of her own country uh, just for, for being a journalist. Um, it, it's no surprise that we are talking about the, the death of press freedom here um, because it really does seem like that's what her country has, has tried to do. It's tried to, to kill her, her journalism career. Well, they, I think they partially succeeded, didn't they? Oh, Absolutely. But, you know, can you imagine that you're being forced, forced out of your country because of your job and that you're doing a successful, proper job, right? She was a very successful journalist. She uncovered amazing stuff. And as a result, you're being punished for it. Um, for, for me, this, this speaks to the situation we're facing in, in many different countries. And, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty grim. But luckily, there are also some, some tips for us, right? When I was listening to her five tips, I thought the one that was the most interesting was uh, if you choose to do investigative journalism and to insist upon freedom of the speech, you have now automatically chosen basically to be an activist. Whether you like it or not, you've now become an activist. You're not just a journalist anymore. You are also an activist. And you should probably just accept that. That's a fact. I think that's pretty dystopic, right? That's... Um Speaking truth to power has become an, an act of activism or... I like that, an act of activism. An act of <laughs> activism. <laughs> because you remember the part that we didn't talk about, because you remember back to one of our other shows, right, where we were talking about Ginger Gorman. She was working in Australia. And even though she... Australia has great freedom of the press. It's just like, you know, any other Anglo-Saxon country that has Murdoch in there. <laughs> It has mostly freedom of the press. Uh, but what because of the, the internet age that we work in and because of the topic that she was talking about, she became a target for what would ostensibly be an audience, right? People started targeting her for what she did. So it wasn't the government coming after her anymore, right? It was the potential audience coming after her. And that's something new too. That's the problem with social media that we, we have at the moment. You know, you can find anything online and you can start to attack a journalist online just because you don't like what they're talking about. What do you think, guys? Is uh, I mean, we titled the show Coping with the Death of Freedom of Speech or, in a sense, Coping with the Death of Journalism. Is that is that are we being dramatic? I think it's also up to us, right? As, as an audience, we, we probably all know that um, the press has become under pressure financially, um, but also politically. Um, maybe we should just put our money where our mouth is and just um, spend some money on proper uh, news outlets, on proper investigations. Um, this is a way we can help journalists to do this work. So we can just sit at the sideline, but we, but we can also fund them and make sure that they still exist in a decade or so. So that's Jordy's advice, and I think we should end with that. Fund the journalists, everybody. If you want to save freedom of speech, fund the journalists. And that is it for today's show. Jordy and Hannah, thank you. Now, thank you, Jonathan. Thanks so much, Jonathan. See you next time. 
And that's it for today's show. Coping with Dystopia is a production of Dare to be Grey. Find out more about us and check out our inspiring stories at daretobegray.com where you can also tell us what you think about what you heard and even suggest a topic for us to talk about. This podcast is made possible with a grant from the Rights, Equality and Citizenship Program of the European Commission. I'm Jonathan Gruber. This is Coping with Dystopia and we hope you cope just a little better. Thanks for listening.